0: Good day. You're tuned into Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christophe in Montreal, and this is the 79th edition. Thank you for being with us. On the broadcast today, we are going to be hearing from musician, community organizer, and uh, writer, Norman Navaratsky, uh, who has been working on a series of plays that look at underreported realities in the context of Canadian colonial history. Norman particularly has focused on uh, the turn of the 19th century going into the 20th century and the experience of immigrant communities, particularly Eastern European and Jewish communities, both in the urban and rural context that faced a great deal of social and economic injustice. Uh, This conversation revolves around a number of projects that Norman has worked on, One that looks at the organizing for tenant rights and worker rights on the Plateau of Montreal and also uh, another work that looks at the history of Ukrainian-Canadians. This is a work that is um, out right now. So I'm broadcasting this conversation today on CKUT here in Montreal and sharing it globally through Free City Radio podcast. Um, because Norman has come out with a new work called Run, Nevratsky, Run, Escape from Banff Prison, a Ukrainian-Canadian World War I story of courage, hope, and resistance. This is a play that was um, written, performed, and produced by Norman Nevratsky. Uh, that is showing until the 17th of December. So please look it up, um, and uh, it will be screening on YouTube. Um, just look up Norman Nevratsky. I thought this was an opportunity to highlight a bit of Norman's works, uh, his historical perspectives on the importance of deconstructing uh, mythologies about um, Canada. And so here's our conversation on Free City Radio. And to start, we'll hear uh, Norman speaking about... um, two of his recent theater works. The one about uh, Nick Zinchuk
1: uh, called Eviction, Dog's Blood, Dog's Blood, Eviction. And it was about uh, Nick Zinchuk and the the Red Plateau in Montreal in 1933. And that was about a Polish-Ukrainian guy, uh, no relation to me personally, But his background resembled that of, could have been my father, could have been my uncles who emigrated here. He was involved in a housing protest, uh, resisting an eviction in the plateau here, which for those of you who don't know, was once upon a time called the Red Plateau, because there were so many anarchists, trade unionists, socialists, you know, everybody was living around here when it was affordable. He was killed by the police during this protest and the largest funeral Montreal had ever seen. 30,000 people gathered and marched and uh, to, in his name. And then the next play I did was called Ukrainians, Pelicans, and Patterson Lake, which was more directly linked to my immediate family, who emigrated here turn of the century in 1900. Uh, Ukrainians took the boat were promised you know, easy, safe passage and all this free land and a wonderful new life awaiting them in Canada. They came here in 1900 and they ended up contracting scarlet fever. and 48 of their children died at the, for, of this one particular group and they were run out of a small town in Manitoba, like literally run out at the points of pitchforks and sticks and people you know, aiming guns at them. Get the hell out of here, you damn Ukrainians, you damn Bohunks, we don't want you here. Get out of here. And uh, as a result of that, like there were 48 of this particular group of settlers who, who who died. And nobody knew about this story. It was buried and only some distant relatives dug it up and erected these wooden monuments to the dead in that area. And again, when I did this play, people wrote to me and said, my God, you know, my grandmother told me this story, I didn't know it was true, and blah, 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 blah. Thank you so very, very much. This is history we didn't learn about in school. And I had the same response to the Nick Cinchuk story as well. Thank you for sharing this history, this Canadian history, important, you know, workers' history, important Montreal history, important social history. Well, underlying all this is sort of the Anglo-Saxon uh, sentiment of racial superiority that we were—we are the promised people. When they emigrate, when the Anglo, when English, Scottish settlers, colonial, colonial settlers came to North America, they were the dominant presence, right? They—they they dominated the land, the people, the animals, the, everything didn't matter if you were First Nation, whoever you already been here, didn't matter. We are the superior race. And that racism permeated the way they then looked at newer immigrants who came to Canada, hoping for a better life as well. And particularly, they singled out East Europeans because they were, they were garlic eaters. They were darker colored than them. They didn't speak the language. They dressed funny. You know, they were poor, uh, unlike the original settlers who amassed you know, their fortunes. Uh, and so there was so much discrimination against East Europeans who came here. And they were on the same plane as First Nations people in terms of how they were treated by these earlier white settlers. And uh, there, there's so many stories I could tell you that my family has told me and even to this day keeps telling me about how First Nations people and Ukrainian people were basically you know, under the same heel of white colonial settlers who had come here, you know, earlier. And they were working together on the railways and in the factories and, you know, on the farms. First Nations people and Ukrainian people. And there were some interesting bonds that were forged there. Anyway, that's another story. I'll tell that a little bit later. But for now, keeping that in mind that they encountered all this racism and they wanted a better life. They had come from East Europe, many of them, uh, because they were persecuted, because they had no freedom, they had no work, they had no food, they were starving, and they came here for a better life. So among them were, quote unquote, you know, radicals. Among them were people who had gone to school, had an education, had done reading, had done thinking had learned about these social movements and were actively involved in Ukraine, in Poland, in Romania, you know, in Hungary. And they sparked a lot of the original union organizing within these Eastern European immigrant communities in places like Montreal and Winnipeg. And here in Montreal, in this red plateau, once upon a time, There were more than a dozen labor halls, Jewish reading circles. There were radical newspapers. Uh, There was radical theater. There were radical bookshops, not just one or two, but many, depending on the language. And there were all these papers that were published, and people were reading them. And they were talking about workers' rights, and they were talking about tenants' rights, and they were talking about racism, you know, and how to fight it. Um, So that kind of was the context where a lot of organizing and resistance movements took place, but always in the shadow of this racism, this anti-East European racism. They called them, you know, stupid bohunks, Ukrainian black bastards, you know, all kinds of names. It's Mm -hmm. unbelievable. historical research was prairie oriented because I was doing the research about my original ancestors who came here at the turn of the century and got off the trains and then had these horse drawn carts, drawing them through this land, which was First Nations land, you know, they didn't know that. They were told, this is land that you must work and we'll give it to you for 10 bucks and it's all yours. You get this parcel here, you get this piece of land there. They had no idea that First Nations people were already here living, you know, off that land because it was their land. They had no idea. And so the government basically was selling them stolen land. And then telling them, you got to work this land. And that's what they did. And in the process of working the land, they befriended First Nations people who were around. And they ended up working together. And they ended up talking about sort of common oppression under, you know, under the English, these Angliki, these Anglo-Saxon settlers, the the earlier settlers, the wealthier settlers. Um, So that was one place where, there were links forged but you can't say oh there was a movement of resistance no it didn't happen like that especially on no. the prairies people were separated by miles and miles and miles of of forest and you know the, you know wilderness that you know they couldn't hang out with each other it was very very difficult you know there were times like stories passed down in my family where the First Nations people saved people's asses. Saved, you know, the the colonials, the settlers' asses. I mean, they showed them how to grow food. They showed them how to forage in the forest. They showed them how to, you know, beat, you know, all kinds of diseases. You know, they gave them shelter when they had none. You know, and it, it was it was it was quite remarkable. Not that that was maintained, you know, for decades and decades. You know, but originally, the initial first settlers, that was their experience that oh these people are welcoming they're being friendly they're they're bringing us meat they're bringing us you know moccasins to wear they're showing us how to survive the cold and where to find the edibles in the forest here so that was appreciated and and that was like one part of the dynamic but for Mm -hmm. sure in the cities well we're talking something else obviously in montreal and here in the plateau the so-called red plateau which is what it was Poles, Ukrainians, you know, Lithuanians, Russians, you know, Irish even, they came together in these labor halls. They mm. read their papers. They might have spoken 20, 30 different languages, but they came together. They struck mm. together. They, they walked out together. They protested together. They, they fought the cops together. The eviction protests were at Nick Zinchuk, poor Nick Zinchuk was killed. That protest drew 2,000 people, blocking mm-hmm. St. Dominic Street between Duluth and de Bouillon. Of course, of course. So my new play now is called Run, Novrotsky, Run, Escape from Banff Prison, and it's about a really dark chapter, another dark chapter in Canadian history. Uh, During the First World War, the federal government proclaimed the War Measures Act, and then decided to round up 9,000 Ukrainian-Canadian citizens in Canada and herd them into 24 concentration camps spread out across the country, including one in northern Quebec and several in Alberta and one near Banff. And they did this because these Ukrainians emigrated to Canada with Austro-Hungarian citizenship papers. And the history behind that is... Ukraine had been invaded by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They occupied the land, they enslaved the people, and they gave them Austro-Hungarian passports. World War I came along in 1914. Great Britain declared war against Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and their allies. Canada joined in, and in Canada's eyes, Ukrainian Canadians were Austro-Hungarians, and therefore, you know, aliens of enemy nationality and should be perceived as a threat, even though Great Britain didn't agree with that and said, no, they're not a threat in Canada, what are you doing? Canada didn't care. The the government at the time, the Borden government, built these federal camps, rounded up unemployed city and town Ukrainian Canadians, because there had been a depression in 1913, just before the 1914 World War I came along, and they were afraid that all these Ukrainian Canadians were going to stir up trouble, because they were marching in the streets, demanding work or bread. They were unemployed. They wanted their rights as citizens, and the government was afraid. Uh Uh-oh. This is, you know, we see mass insurrections around the world here. We see Bolsheviks over there. We see communists over here. We see anarchists over there. These Canadian Ukrainians might be presenting the same sort of threat for us. Round them up put them in these labor camps, make them work, force them to work at gunpoint. And they did that. My play is about a guy who could have been a distant relative of mine. And I actually had possibly three distant relatives imprisoned in Alberta. He's in this camp behind the barbed wire. He's committed no crime. He's broken no law. He's forced to do slave labor. And he just goes over and over in his head what the hell am i doing here how am i going to get out of here Mm -hmm. and the play is about his escape that the psychology what goes into somebody's desperate thinking to get them out of a a, you know a a horrible untenable situation how do they get out of a camp that's way up in the mountains miles Mm -hmm. from anywhere and they're Mm -hmm. being beaten and abused and tortured and everything else where do they get that strength Where does that spirit of resistance come from? And in my play, his grandmother, his Bubba, appears to him in dreams and she works her magic and she actually helps him plot, plan, execute his escape. So the play we filmed here in Montreal um, and it's gonna go online Saturday, December the 11th until Friday, December 17th on my YouTube channel. It's free. I'll be asking for donations, because I had to pay for this myself, but it's free to watch. Um, And it's called Run, Navratzky, Run, Escape from Banff Prison, and you Google my name, Norman Navratzky, N-A-W-R-O-C-K-I, you'll find my YouTube channel, you'll find the play, watch it, give me some feedback, I love to hear from people. It's only 40 minutes long, and it's got tons of original music. I play music with my sister as well. So we have traditional Ukrainian folk music and my original compositions.
0: You've been listening to a conversation with Norman Navratzky, uh, who worked on a project uh, recently called Run, Navratsky Run. Escape from Banff Prison, a Ukrainian-Canadian World War I story of courage, hope, and resistance. This play uh, is showing right now. Just look it up on YouTube. Uh, You can search Norman's name, Norman Navratzky. His last name is spelled N-A-W-R-O-C-K-I. Thanks so much to Norman for being on the program today. This has been the 79th edition of Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend. Um, You can encourage them to subscribe to the podcast, um, Free City Radio. And... um, Yeah, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can write me anytime at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. I'm on uh, Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And thanks again to Norman, and thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. This is CKUT 90.3 FM, this edition being broadcast on Campus Community Radio at 90.3 FM in Montreal. I'll finish the broadcast today with a piece of music from... Norman Navratsky and myself, we played together on a project that I worked on called Duets for Abdul Razik. And uh, this was a project uh, through which I invited a number of local uh, musicians to play a series of piano duets. In this one, Norman plays violin. It was to draw attention to and to celebrate the struggle of Abu Sufyan Abdul Razik, who is a Sudanese-Canadian That was involved in a long term struggle for justice. Uh, He was detained in Sudan by Sudanese authorities, jailed and tortured without trial. He uh, was in that position because Canadian intelligence services um, basically gave information to Sudan about Abu Sufyan. And while he was visiting his mother in Khartoum, Sudan, he was arrested. Um, It was made clear through federal court that Canada was involved in the process that led to his jailing. Uh, Eventually, he returned to Canada after a major campaign took place called Project Fly Home, which I was involved in. And uh, the duets for Abdul Razik project comes out of that context. So this is a duet that I worked on with uh, Norman Navratsky, who you heard on the program today for this initiative. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.
2: Most important um, you know, when you're going forward, and, 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 and when we approach things in the way that the uncompromising way that we do, that there's an allowance for people to take their place where they see their place as being in that, um, and and uh, you know while uh, on one hand, you know people aren't uh, dismissed or or. Uh, uh, Lectured, whatever for for throwing a rock at a cop's head. At the same time, you know people aren't dismissed for, for being at the back of a crowd either, um, or for uh, you know uh, uh, doing research for the organization on an issue that we're working on, or for. Um, Being a you know person who maintains our radio show or puts together that publication or um, you know does intake work for for uh, cases or or represents people in court. I mean, there's all these different elements, and I I don't think um, I don't think that we can worry uh, about alienation in the sense that I think it's vital to 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 put out. out there what your organization stands for and the fact that that we will defend ourselves physically when that, you know, needs to happen, that we will fight physically when that needs to happen. Because otherwise people don't know what they're signing on for. Otherwise it's a lie. Um, And people have to be able to make that decision because it's fair and just for that person, but also because we have to, you know, we want people who agree with us to come to our organization. We don't want to have to deal with, um, you know, debates around these issues when that is solidly and wholly and conclusively, you know, how we operate and what our orientation is. So like,